Anyway, good to have you all, not only those of you that are first-time guests, but also those that are returning uh, friends. Glad to have you as well. Uh, my name is Randy, and I'm the senior pastor, also my wife Clara, who uh, today is still in Switzerland. Yes, she is doing it rough, five-star hotel, all that stuff. Um, one of our daughters and her husband uh, were vacationing and took uh, Clara along because that daughter is pregnant, and the son likes the black and blue slopes, and uh, not just not black and blue. I think it's black and blue because you get hurt. But anyway, I guess they're just black anyway. Anyway, I'm playing. But anyway, Clara is uh, was supposedly there to uh, partner with uh, Tabitha and enjoy the boy. These glasses are weird. They're they're progressive things, and so the sheet's going. Wah! Anyway, I have a question for you. When you think of being successful in life, what do you think about? Lots of money. A little house. I mean a big house. Big, big house. Yeah. Strong family. Close to God. Happy. Okay car? Anyone want a nicer car? That happily married thing, you know, with a spouse that thinks you're the most incredible person on the planet. Kids that never do anything wrong, get straight A's, are incredible athletes and musicians, and need little or no attention or input from you. That's from somebody who's not, he doesn't even have any yet. But that's his goal, I guess. The job where you can come and go as you please, doing something that's incredibly fun and rewarding while earning a fabulous salary to boot. Uh, Having the free time and money to pursue all those hobbies and entertainments you've always wanted to do but never could. Cindy. Every one of us hopes and dreams for success in life. Some are realistic and worthy of pursuing. Others are fantasies that only come true in fairy tales. But Jesus and the Bible differentiate between these fairly clearly. For the last couple of months, we have been talking about how do we walk in the footsteps of Jesus? How do we live the kind of life that he lived, saying and doing the kinds of things he said and did? And I've suggested that we do that by using keys to kingdom living that God has given to us in his word that enable us to live these kinds of successful lives, pleasing God, fulfilling to ourselves, and helpful to others. Two weeks ago, we began talking about the key of stewardship by defining it. Stewardship, I said, was managing and overseeing something that isn't our own. It's understanding why we're here on the earth, and it's fulfilling the purpose for which God has made us. Now, that's not the normal definition that most Christians think of. Most Christians, when they think of stewardship, they think of giving, passing the basket, the offering, the tithes. But stewardship is much, much, much larger than that simple definition. It is managing and overseeing things that are not our own, understanding why we're here and fulfilling our purpose. We also identified a number of biblical purposes and principles of stewardship. The first principle of stewardship was that God owns everything based on his creation and his continuing care and oversight of our world, God owns everything. 
And the second principle of stewardship is that we are managers of what God owns. This afternoon, um, I was where my daughters and I are, my two younger daughters and I are reading uh, a new book series. We like reading together. And uh, in this particular case, uh, a young girl, the heroine in the story, was sitting with the Christ figure in the book. And um, he gave her a gift. And she says, well, I'd like to give you a gift as well. And so all of a sudden, a ring appeared in her hand, and she gave it to him. And something else appeared, and, and she gave that to him. And, she, and then another thing, and then another thing. And finally, you know, something was in her hand, and she just wasn't, wasn't sure what was going on. And I said to the, the, the girls, isn't it interesting that we long to give to God, to give back to him, and realizing that everything we have is his. And so as we have it to give, he's the one who gave it to us to give back. It's really a very, very profound thing. But then there's the question of, wait, but isn't there something, isn't there something I can give? And there is, ourselves. And that's really most what he's looking for. Silver and gold, he's got all kinds of it. It's not a challenge to him. Land, resources, not an issue. People? That's a whole other dynamic. So stewardship involves managing every area of our lives. Our time, our money, our family, our home, our gifts, our talents, our work, our resources, our friends, everything. Last week, Scott Turnigal, our uh, speaker, stewardship, talked about how stewardship includes our stewardship of God's rule and reign in and through our lives. That God's kingdom is present and it comes only through his people. It's not something just sort of sitting over there. His reign and rule is in people. And we are those people as his followers that are able to extend, to increase, to advance that kingdom into our world. The question I've wanted us to consider as we go through this series is, how am I doing at being faithful to steward well the things that God has given me to manage? How am I doing at being faithful to steward well the things God has given me to manage? One of the areas that we are responsible to steward is money. Now, whenever a preacher starts to talk about money, everyone usually looks at the person next to them and says, See, I knew it. They always talk about money at church. So, to get it over with, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and I'd like you to say, See, I knew it. They always talk about money at church. Okay, got that over with. Well, those of you who have been coming to this church for some time will know that we don't talk about money all the time. In fact, hardly ever, one of the leaders who's been here a long time says. But in order to be true to the Bible, periodically we have to talk about money because the Bible talks about it. In fact, the Bible talks about it a lot. The Bible devotes 500 verses on prayer. That's a lot of verses, 500 verses on prayer. There's 500 verses on faith. Faith is really important. But there's over 2,000 verses on money and possessions. I think maybe there's a reason why. Jesus talked about money in 16 of his 38 parables, just a little bit under half. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels talks about money. So, for the next couple of weeks, as we're looking at this 
these topic of the keys to kingdom living and specifically this key of stewardship, I want to look at what the Bible has to say about money. But before we head into that today, let's pray. Father, I know that um, this, there's a significant reason why you talked about it so much uh, because of the place that it plays in our world and in our hearts. And I just ask that you would come and help us to lay hold of your understanding about money. And that we would come into alignment and agreement with you. Father, I ask that you would um, really help me to speak as I ought. And especially for our guests, that even in the midst of uh, this topic or conversation that perhaps might feel uneasy, I ask that they might find and meet you. Come, Holy Spirit, walk us through this in Jesus' name. Amen. No matter who you talk with, when you ask Americans how they're doing financially, many would say it's a struggle. We're not making it very well. Others might say, well, we're making it, but it's a struggle. Someone once asked John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, how much money would it, would it take to satisfy a man? And Rockefeller replied, just a little bit more. Isn't that true? You know, if I could just get out on my own and into my own apartment, some of you might, young people might be thinking. If we could just get out of this apartment into a house, some of you young families. If we could just get out of this rental into our own home. If we could just get out of this house or with, you know, get another house with another bedroom or bathroom or a pool or live outside the city or on and on and on it could go. If we just made a little bit more. I've said it, haven't you? One person once complained that because of inflation, it now takes twice as much money to live beyond our means as it used to. <laughs> Are you aware that the average American says they only need between 20 to 40 more per- 40% more to be happy? How much more do you and I need to be happy? For most of us, really, it's not that we want money so much. It's what we think money will buy. It's what we think it will provide for us. A teenage son approached his father for an increase in his allowance. After delivering a lecture on the virtues of economy, the father added plaintively, Don't you realize, son, that there are more important things than money? Of course, the boy replied. That's the trouble. What trouble, the father asked. Those important things cost a lot of money. For most of us, when we think about what we think money will bring us, we think about one of three things that we hope money will bring. The first thing that we hope money will bring us is more satisfaction. If I have more money, I can buy more stuff. I'll be more happy. Isn't that what all the ads tell us? The problem with that is that our yearning power will always exceed our earning power. We'll always want more. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Those who love money will never have enough. How absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. And of course, Ecclesiastes is written by perhaps one of the wealthiest men in the world. So we might say, well, he had it all. But if he had it all and found that happiness wasn't there, perhaps there's a lesson for us. If money did bring happiness, then the wealthiest people would be the happiest people. And typically that's not true. Wealth does not bring more satisfaction as we always want more. The second thing that we hope money will bring us is more significance. If I have money, then people will respect me. They'll look up to me. I'll have power, prestige, status. 
We think that if we have the right emblem on our shirts or our shoes or our car, then people will love us and we'll never be short of friends. But the Bible says in Luke 12:15, true life is not made up of the things you own, no matter how rich you may be. God says our net worth and our self-worth have nothing to do with each other. Our value is not based on our valuables. It does not make us more significant because we have a bigger checkbook. The third thing that we hope money will bring us is more security. We've grown up in America to think that if I have enough money, then everything will be okay. All my needs will be met. If my savings or my retirement is large enough, if my investments in the stock market is big enough, I don't have to worry about my future. My kids will be well taken care of. The question, of course, becomes, well, how big does the pile have to be before we're secure? When you think about it, we can never have enough. Something always can happen, and we can lose everything overnight. A few weeks ago, the stock market went down further than it had since 9-11. It doesn't take much to put stocks on sale. If we put our security in something we can lose or something that can be taken from us, then it's not secure. Proverbs 23.5 says, Trust in your money and down you go. Trust in God and flourish as a tree. So if money then does not bring us more satisfaction, if it doesn't bring us more significance or more security, then what should our attitude toward monies be? Let me just give you a few points. Firstly, money and what it buys is not the goal. What is it that we spend the bulk of our time and energy on? Is it not for most of us the attainment of things of this life? Things like food and clothing, CDs, computers, phones, cars, houses, health care. And doesn't that sort of feel kind of empty if, most of, if we're spending most of our time on gathering those things? Shouldn't there be something more or bigger to be living for? Last week, Scott read and talked to us about what Jesus tells us should be our primary concern out of Luke 12. 22 through 31. Turning to his disciples, Jesus said, So I tell you, don't worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear, for life consists of far more than food and clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't need to plant or harvest or put food in barns because God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? Of course not. And if worry can't do little things like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies, how they grow. They don't work, they don't make clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he that much more surely care for you? You have so little faith. And don't worry about food, what to eat and drink. Don't worry whether God will provide it for you. These things dominate the thoughts of most people, but your Father already knows your needs. He will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Luke 12, 22 to 31 out of the New Living. Life is more than food and clothing, Jesus says. It's more than houses and cars and cell phones, computers and entertainment. Money and the things that it buys are not to be the goal. They're not to be the primary concern of our lives. Jesus says, make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Does that mean that we should quit all our jobs and go up on a mountain and wait for Jesus to come back? No. 
Does that mean we should quit our jobs and become street evangelists or missionaries? No. What it means is that we wake up every day and say to God, I know you are at work today in the lives of those around me. Here am I. Use me. Show me what you're doing today that I might partner with you. Seek first his kingdom. Seek to advance his rule and reign in your own life and the lives of others. It means our focus and our priorities are not around ourselves and our little world, but are around God and his big world. So the first attitude or understanding we're to have about money is that money is not the goal. The second attitude or understanding that we need to have about money is that money is a test. The first principle of stewardship is that God owns everything. The second principle of stewardship is that we're managers of what God, of what is God's. So how we steward God's money is very important. In Luke 16, verses 10 through 13, Jesus said, Unless you are faithful in small matters, you won't be faithful in large ones. If you cheat even a little, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you are not faithful with other people's money, why should you be trusted with money of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I've heard it said, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you your priorities. If we were to publish the giving records of all of our attenders and members, including all of our other ministry and charities that we give to, would we be proud or would we be satisfied or would we be embarrassed? Would we perhaps never come back? Now, we're not going to do that. But Jesus said, unless you are faithful in small matters, you won't be faithful in large. If you cheat even a little you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. Money is a test. Now, I'm not saying that if we fail the test that God's going to throw us out of heaven or not allow us to get there. Our trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is what gets us into heaven. But God is looking for faithfulness. He's looking for a life of gratefulness to Him. And the way we handle our finances is one of the ways that he tests our faithfulness and our gratefulness to him. The third attitude or understanding that we have to have about money is that money can be a trap. I think we probably all would imagine that. So perhaps maybe what we've thought is, well, it'll never trap me. How about we give me enough money and then we'll see. One of the simple tests of our faithfulness, money can also be a serious test of the pursuit of our lives. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul said, We didn't bring anything with us when we came into the world, and we certainly cannot carry anything with us when we die. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Some have misquoted this verse and said money is the root of all evil. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. 
People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Money is not the problem of life. It's the love of money and the pursuit of it to the disregard of the other aspects of stewardship to God. Earning a good living, even earning a great salary, is not a problem. That's not the issue. If you're longing to be rich, if you're craving money for what it can give you, then you'd better look out. For this could be a trap for you. And it may lead you to pain and destruction rather than happiness and joy. So what does the Bible say our attitudes and understandings about money should be? Firstly, our money is not to be the goal. Money is not to be the goal. Secondly, money is a test. And thirdly, money can be a trap. And then lastly, a fourth attitude and understanding we need to have about money is that money brings responsibility. The Apostle Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 6, Tell those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. But their trust should be in the living God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and should give generously to those in need, always being ready to share with others whatever God has given them. Now, I just wonder, how many of us here are financially and materially rich? Or how many of us would be poor? And if so, compared to who? A few years ago, I heard about the then uh, new president of Hewlett-Packard, who, besides her who-knows-what millions-of-dollar-a-year salary, was given $90 million bonus, signing bonus, and a Learjet for taking the position. So if we compare ourselves to her, we're paupers. But if we compare ourselves to 90% of the world's current population, or probably even most of the richest kings and queens of history, then we are all quite rich. And as a result, Paul tells us that we should be rich in good works and give generously to those in need. We'll get to and look at it in a few weeks, but I'm just reminded of the passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul addresses the issue of our giving and our generosity. And his, his comment there is not that we should be harmed by this generosity, but that there would be benefit for all, that there would be sufficiency for all. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. God's promise to us is found in 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. One of the most wonderful feelings in the world is giving to somebody else. Last week, after uh, the talk that uh, Scott gave, an uh, individual from our congregation came up and handed me a folded check. And they said, this is for you or whoever you sense you want to give it to. The name is not written. Now, we've signed it but there's no name on the line. The amount's filled in, they said. And I immediately went and handed it to an individual who's been out of work in our congregation for over seven months. God's provision. And I want to tell you that the person who gave it is not one of the richest in our congregation. So, what are some of the attitudes and understandings we should have towards money? Firstly, money is not to be the goal. Whose is it anyway? 
Money is a test. How's your grade? Thirdly, money can be a trap. Feel any springs on you? Four, money brings responsibility. How responsible are you being? This afternoon, as we reflect on this topic of money and what we hope it will give us, I'd like to advocate that probably our biggest issue related to money is not the challenges of money, but is fear. Fear that we will not have what we need. Fear that somehow we or those we love will suffer. Isn't that really what you face? It's what I face. So the question for us who want to follow Jesus and live the kind of life he lived is, do we trust God to come through for us? Do we wrestle believing that if we live our life seeking first his kingdom, that he will really provide the everything else we need? I think that's what it really comes down to. And I want to wrap up our time by looking at a story from the life of Jesus that I believe highlights this real issue that we face when it comes to the area of money and finances and for that matter much of life. In Mark chapter 5 as well as Luke 8 we're told the story of a Jewish religious leader named Jairus. He came to Jesus in a very, very desperate place. His 12-year-old daughter, his only child, was dying. Mark 5.23 says, Seeing Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet and begged him to come quickly to his home. My little girl is dying. Jesus, would you come? Would you put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live? Can you feel this man's desperation? All of us who have children can imagine what this man was feeling. Jesus, of course, agrees. He immediately heads off with Jairus to his home. But along the way, there's a delay. A long enough delay that messengers from Jairus' home arrive with the news that the little girl has died. What anguish Jairus must have felt in that moment. What disappointment that Jesus had not gotten there in time. What anger probably he felt towards the woman that had caused the delay. Jesus, overhearing what Jairus had been told, looked at Jairus with love and compassion in his eyes, and he said to him, Jairus, look at me. Do not be afraid. Trust me, and she will live. Now think with me. This this man had just been told that his daughter has died. His emotions are running the gamut, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Trust me. Now we, of course, know the end of the story, but this man didn't. My guess is that as he stood there looking into the eyes of Jesus, Jairus somehow knew that Jesus would never lie. That Jesus loved his daughter as much as he did. And that he could trust Jesus with his daughter's life. So Jairus responded, yes, Lord, I trust you. And they headed off to the house. Jesus does, in fact, raise the little girl from the dead and presents her to her parents who are, of course, overwhelmed with joy. What an awesome story of God's love and care. I wonder if you have ever been in a really, really desperate place in your life. A time when you were overwhelmed and afraid. 
Maybe it was something related to your health. Maybe it was a relational situation with a family member or a spouse or child. Maybe it was at work or a school situation. Maybe it was financial. And you were afraid something bad was going to happen. But then God came through for you. Like Jesus came through for Jairus in this story. I'd like to just pause for a minute and I'd like you just to remember a time when you were in a real desperate place, overwhelmed by fear, and God came through for you. Can you just pause, maybe close your eyes? If you can't think of a time for you, can you possibly think of a time for another loved one? And then with your eyes closed, I just would ask you this question. What does it do to your heart, remembering that he has done that for you? What do you feel in your heart for God that he's cared enough for you? Just in your own heart right now, just just give God thanks. Give him thanks again for coming through for you. Father, I do thank you for the many, many, many times you have come through for me. Times and situations like Jairus where it was related to my children. Times related to financial situations, church situations. Times where I was gripped by fear. Trusting in something bad to happen. And yet you came through. Thank you. And thank you for the many times that you came through for these here. Help us, Lord, to be grateful people. If I could, let me take you just one more step this afternoon and then we'll be done. Most of us here today are probably facing fears of some kind, one kind or another. And I said a few weeks ago, the trouble with fear is that we're trusting something bad to happen rather than trusting God to do something good. And I just want us to take a moment, as we did in, with a grateful heart a moment ago, and simply acknowledge to God our fears. Acknowledge them perhaps even to ourselves. Fears about the future. Fears about family. Fears about finances, about our health. Fears about our needs for significant relationships. I believe that Jesus is standing here today like he said to Jairus 2,000 years ago and he wants to say to you, don't be afraid. Trust me. Would you let him say that to you? So if I could, I would just ask you again to just close your eyes and pause for a moment and just be real with God. Be real with yourself. Just simply offer to Him the fears. Identify them, whatever they are for you. 
and just, if, if helpful, open your hands and hand them to Him. And look into His eyes. In whatever way that you picture Jesus, long flowing robe, sandaled feet, look into His eyes. Hear Him say, Don't be afraid. Trust me. Father, we sang a song earlier that spoke of trusting you and of your awesomeness. The fact that you created the world with by a word. And Lord, I know we face um, a war that's going on, a war inside of us between fear and faith, a war outside of us with the world systems, with powers and principalities. But there is no question that all authority rests in you. And that there is no problem too big for you. And though you will not defile the freedom that we each carry and the decisions that we make, you offer a good through every circumstance. As Paul said to us, God is able to bring good in and through every circumstance to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Lord, we welcome You now. Take the fears that grip our hearts and our minds that we lay in bed at wake at night thinking about. Take them away and let us live instead trusting You. And Father, as we leave and go away this week, as we head off to work in the morning, as we get our next paycheck and we deposit it into our checking accounts, might we have a whole new concept of money. Might we recognize that it's all from you, that it's all yours. Might we learn what it means to be generous to others to be responsible to you and to trust you that as we seek first your kingdom, your rule, your realm, to live within the framework, the keys of your kingdom, to trust you to provide everything we need. Thank you that you are here today and tomorrow and next week and next month and next year to do that for us. You are trustworthy. You never lie. Thank you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. It's 10 after 5. Is that what time? No, is that clock right or wrong? Are we? It's 5.05. Wow. 
What I'd like to do uh, in conclusion here is um, just provide an opportunity to invite the Holy Spirit to give us any um, additional direction for any care or ministry. Some of you have come uh, this afternoon particularly looking for um, God and help. Uh, Perhaps this message has been on target for you and has been a part of that. Uh, Others of you perhaps are here um, needing God's touch in other ways. And so we just want to pause for a minute and invite his Holy Spirit. It's part of what we do here as part of the vineyard is uh, to allow him to direct and lead and guide. And so we're just going to pray and invite him uh, to do that. If uh, some of you would um, get any encouraging words or want to join me up here, that would be great. Um, And then we'll just see what the Father wants to do. Father, we do thank you that you are here today, that this is not just about us, that it's not just about words on a page, it's not words in a book, but that you are a real God, that you are a living God, that you know our needs, you know our names, you know the secrets of our hearts, and you want to reveal yourself to us. And so I just welcome you, Holy Spirit, show yourself today. Give us words and understandings for the needs that are here and how you want to address them. And even in that, I trust you, God. This is not something we conjure up. This is not something we can create or generate. Lord, my pockets are empty. But I come trusting you to minister and care to your people. Come, Holy Spirit. lights down a little bit so I can see a little better. Thank you. I want to see their faces. Um, As we were praying, anybody that would like uh, to join me, any of our leaders or trained uh, ministry people to be up here with me, I would love your support. Um, While we were, while I was praying uh, a minute ago, uh, very, very, very clearly uh, a sense of um, probably a husband and wife family that is really, really, really wrestling with a significant decision. Um, Don't know the nature of that uh, decision, but um, you're in distress over the need to know the answer to that. And as crazy as this might sound, I believe the Lord told me to tell you that the answer has already been given and that he's here today to help you recognize that. During worship um, tonight, I out of the corner of my eye, as you were worshiping, Lady in the Black, I don't know your name, I saw the flow of the Holy Spirit just 
running off of your hands as you had them extended. So I just share that. Okay, so what, what do you think that means? What, what do you want else to, does the Lord want to say to her? I had a sense that um, she was just really, that you're really open to allowing the Holy Spirit to use you and to work through you and um, be blessed in that. Thank you. That was Camille. This is Mariana. I kept seeing a picture of something that happened when Rick was about two and a half. And I think he'll let me share it as long as I don't show you the video. I do have video. And for a price. No, just kidding. Um, when he was about two and a half, we did what? Okay. 20%? <laughs> we'll talk about it later. <laughs> I don't have any customers yet. So. Um, we, went to, we did swimming classes. And he would have to stand on the edge of the pool, and I would be inside the pool, and I would say, okay, jump to me. And he would jump so hard he would land on me. Well, that wasn't the point. The point wasn't for me to practice catching. The point was for him to hit the water and swim a little bit to me so he would learn how to swim, right? And so there were times what I was seeing in my mind, there were times when I'd say, okay, jump. And he'd jump, and I would back up to make him swim a little, which I'm sure he wasn't crazy about. But that's how he learned, right? And my sense was that somebody here, maybe more than one, might feel like I keep reaching out to God and he keeps backing up. It's not that he doesn't love you. It's not that he's going to let you drown. Okay, I never let him drown, obviously. <laughs> okay, so just know that he loves you so much. It was really, really hard for me, okay, to back up like that. He loves you so much he's willing to let you grow and learn something you need to know so you don't drown someday. help out there? In the vineyard, we talk about everybody gets to play. Uh, in some traditions, we're accustomed to, you know, the great uh, seemingly magical uh, minister who, you know, does it all, plays drums, leads worship, you know, runs five, five, 25Ks and, you know, all that stuff. But uh, in the vineyard, I'm just one of y'all. I'm one of the team. have my part to play, but so do each of us here. Thank you. I just felt like when he was um, going through the sermon, I know this happened for me, and he said that word, you know, what this all comes down to is fear. Um, and then as we prayed about that later on in the, in the teaching time, that... Um, there are particular people that immediately something very particular in your life was pinpointed. As soon as that word fear, as soon as that registered in your brain, there was just this pinpoint to a particular thing. And that pinpoint is um, not Satan trying to make you afraid. It's God trying to draw attention to something he wants to, to um, minister to you about. So if you felt that just precise, um, I almost want to use the word burning, but just that particular... Um, just make sure you come up here at the end when we um, and let let some of us pray for you today for that. So. 
Okay, I'm, I'm also getting some uh, just thoughtfulness of some physical conditions uh, that may be present here that the Father would touch. Um, and joints are just sort of coming to mind, whether they be knees or elbows or fingers, uh, shoulders, uh, joints. I believe that the Father would uh, want to touch and bring some healing and mending uh, to some of you who are experiencing pain and discomfort uh, in some of those arenas. Um, also, I just got the word sinus uh, infection. Um, perhaps somebody here that's kind of been battling um, just a lot of pressure. I know a lot of we've had lots and lots of people who've been sick uh, through the months, uh, but somebody that's still uh, carrying uh, pressure and uh, drainage in the sinus area that would we'd like to pray for you. And then somebody with a heart ache. And I'm uh, not sure what that's related to either, but uh, just just a, a, a real thick presence of sadness, a heartache over a loss. So if um, any of these things that we've shared, um, the that pinpointed thought of fear, area of your life where you're troubled there, any of these other words related to... Um, needs that you might have, any other needs if you would like and allow us to pray with you we'll have some folks up here that would love that opportunity to talk with you and pray with you and um, anything related to um, this uh, talk today that is just touching you, need some confirmation, some help um, also the, the family that's involved in that real um, pressing decision uh, would love an opportunity to pray with you as well Father we thank you that you are here and that you love each one of us and that you know our hearts, you know our needs. And so we just welcome you to continue the process that you are at work in our lives. Father, for those who uh, will come uh, now here as we conclude, uh, might you be very, very real. Uh, Might you bring life, the sozo life that you have longed for us all to have and to experience. And for those who are going to um, head out, Lord, we just ask that you would keep them safe and make us all uh, remindful of, very, very mindful of how you care for us each and every day and that we would become people of gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. Have a great week. And we do very much look forward to our Easter gig that we're going to do and would love your help and support. So please do talk to me um, if you're able to help in that and not already doing that. Again, we've got folks up here that would love an opportunity to pray for you. The rest of you are released and blessed. Thank you for being with us today.